Almighty God, we thank you very much for gathering us together this morning and for the reason you gather us together, to come to you and to hear from your word and to be refreshed and restored. And, uh, and so, Lord, we ask for those things to happen now. As we look into the words that have been penned um, by Daniel, help us to see your hand, your love, your intervention, and, uh, and to be able to trust you for the way you are at work in our lives today. You are the same God who rescued Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You are the same God who rescues us through Christ's work on the cross. And you are the same God who walks with us daily. So, Father, we thank you and entrust this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, yeah, we're going to be in Daniel. And just kind of, you know, where we wrapped up last week was, was actually kind of a hard place to wrap up, right? I mean, we were talking about, we looked back in Kings, Second Kings, to find out what exactly was happening in the environment, the world uh, around them. Interestingly, uh, there were some other things that were going on in the world at the same time that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon were taking over that area of the world. Um, at the same time, the construction of the Acropolis was being done. So the Acropolis in Greece was being built at the same time that Babylon was taking Israel captive. Um, the Mayan civilization was flourishing in Mexico. Uh, Aesop was writing his fables at the same time. Um, Confucius and Buddha were both alive and doing their thing. And it was the Phoenicians who made the first sea journey around Africa. Now, interestingly enough, right, you're not reading about any of those things in 2 Kings or in Daniel, because that's, while it's happening in the world, the scriptures are focused on what God is doing in the lives of his people and in preparation for a savior. And so whether or not Aesop was writing the fables or not doesn't have direct impact on the advent of Christ and his, his incarnation and being born in Bethlehem and then dying on the cross. So scriptures aren't going to refer to those. Scriptures aren't going to talk about some of those other things that are happening in the world, even though we might have some record of it in historical, historical events and archaeology and things of that nature. So I share that just again kind of as an emphasis. It's one of the things we talked about last week was the, some of the complications in Daniel. And sometimes that's one of them, it seems, because it is kind of a micro-focus. It's a microcosm. How is God going to deliver his people and still prepare a way for a Savior when it looks like all hope is lost? Is God still able to do his, you know, keep his promises, even though most of the people have perished and those who have remained either have been taken off as exiles and captives into Babylon or the poorest of the poor have been left to try and do something with a land that has been destroyed. Where, how is God going to save his people? And how is God going to deliver us? So those are still the thematic questions uh, for us as we consider Daniel. And, and where we ended, right, this kind of moment of, it was devastating. It was a devastating time. There was abundance in death. There was abundance in grief. An abundance of poverty and humiliation. Um, they had suffered utter ruin. 
And now those who, who again, as I mentioned, were remaining, I mean, how do you pick up the pieces after something like that? I, I made this statement last week, and I think it still holds true for us, that as American citizens, this is going to be hard for us, I think, to get our heads wrapped around. Because we're just, we're used to being on the winning side. And so what is it like to have just utter devastation? Utter devastation. If you're doing the Red Letter Challenge, you would have read that um, 40, if you make $40,000 a year or more, you're in the top 4% in the world. And if you make 50000 more or more a year, you're in the top 1% of the world. It's hard for us, I think, to understand this kind of devastation, despair, and hopelessness. And that's, again, this is the context, this is the world that Daniel is writing in and uh, what's happening in their lives. So, again, you have those who have been left behind, so to speak, left behind to try and pick up the pieces. And they have watched all the young, the, you know, the brightest and, and most capable and the taken away. Taken away as slaves and hostages and captives to a foreign place. And so there's this, I think, some, some hopelessness. What else was taken away when the youth were taken away? I'm just going to throw that out there for a minute based on your recollection of what we've talked about or what you know from our Sunday School stories of Daniel. So if the youth were taken away, what else did their future? Right? What does the future look like? It looks pretty bleak. For both those who remain and those who are taken away. A lot of questions, a lot of uncertainty. What else? Weren't the important people taken too? Yes. Yes, you know, I mean Nebuchadnezzar left a couple back to try and rule over or, you know, kind of keep, yeah, keep rule, keep the population that's still there kind of under control so they aren't a problem for Nebuchadnezzar in the future. But, yeah, mostly either they were, they were conquered in either through death or through exile. Right, Delisa? You take a lot of the hope away just because when you take the youth away from people, you don't see the natural progression of things ongoing. I mean, what's one of our common phrases when we talk about our own youth? They are the future. The future. The future. Right. And so, you know, that's why we invest, and that's why we want to do the things. Even as we've talked about our own high school here at Grace, it's, this is our future. We, this, is, this statement has been made for generations. We are always one generation, as Christians, the Christian faith is always one generation away from dying. And so when even Elijah says, I'm the last one, God says, no, I have, I have, I have a remnant. 7,000 people in Jerusalem have not bowed down to Baal. God is the one who's responsible for the continuation of his kingdom and the faith. And yet we can say, and look at it from the other side of the equation, and say, but one generation, always one generation away. And I think that's true in many, many realms. Um, so yeah. All that's left are the elderly people trying to eke out a survival, and what's, you know, all the youth are gone. What else was taken? I'm just kind of throwing that out here, see if you. They took this. Some of the stuff from the temple. Exactly, Mary. Their goods. Yep. Yeah. They took some of the things from the temple. 
which were sacred, <coughs> dear to them, and important for their identity as people, but also as part of their religion, their faith. It was, you know, the Ark of the Covenant disappears, the altar, the table, the, all the tools. And so everything, what was that, Jess? Goblins. Yeah. Everything that was part of the worship rituals and specifically the forgiveness and the atonement of their sins. Hopeless. Can you imagine being in a place where, in, in your life, where forgiveness is not available to you? That's, that would have been their utter despair. Forgiveness is not available to you. Our people have been taken away. Our genera- the next generation has been taken away. All our riches have been taken away. Our leaders have been taken away. But again, most importantly, our faith has been taken away. If God is, remember, God said when the temple was done, the cloud resides on the temple, and it was, this will be where my people come into my presence. And now, gone. Yeah, done. I was thinking really what, what the Babylonians did was stripped of identity. The identity? Their identity. Yeah. Like, their army, their wealth, their religion, their children. Every, everything that they have is completely gone. Yeah, so I was saying, who are we? They don't. We're, we're really, I mean, I don't know, I, I don't want to speculate too much, but it could have been, we are squatters, not even, just no place, no name, nothing. And that is the time frame that Daniel is writing. And so let's read again from Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 8 because now he's we Daniel has said this is where he is this is where some of his other fellow youth are and and so now that he's he's talking about what's happening to them a little bit of the historical note here verse 8 but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine and he asked the chief officials for permission not to defile himself this way it's a key thought there We'll come back to that, but I wanted to note it for the moment. Daniel asks the Babylonian chief, who's responsible for them the, as captives, he asks permission. He asks them for permission not to defile himself. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. Another, I mean, this just can be phrase after phrase where we just, this is amazing. God was working in the heart of somebody who did not know God. What was that, Jess? The Babylonian. Yeah, the Babylonian, who worships other idols. And yet God was at work in his heart and mind, motivating him, causing him to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of the, my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Well, Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. It's not a long test. I mean, there's no way we could, you know, come up with some diet plan that says we should all be vegetarians because 10 days is not enough time. And yet somebody came up with that diet plan. Yeah, I know. (laughs) The 10-day diet plan. No, the Daniel plan. Oh, the Daniel, that's right, that's what it's called. Um, I got off track there. Sorry for that for a second. Um, So anyway, it's a 10-day test. 
your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. And treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. I can just see the rest of the group. <laughs> Daniel, <laughs> are you kidding me? I don't eat green food, and now that's all I get. <laughs> yeah, right. What were you thinking? So uh, anyway, we'll pause there for a moment and talk about what is... Nebuchadnezzar accomplishing. He's done several things now, right? He's changed their names. And so they have Hebrew names, but we know them. So Daniel is his Hebrew name, just to kind of reiterate what we talked about already. Daniel's his Hebrew name. His name actually gets changed to Belshazzar. That's his Babylonian name. But since Daniel is writing it, I think that's why he keeps referring to himself as Daniel. Even though the other three he refers to them by their Babylonian names. And I have I just have some thoughts on that based on what I've read in the commentaries. I'll come back to that. So we have Hananiah was changed to Shadrach, which uh, the, the Babylonian name means illuminated by the sun god. So that's, again, names are so important. And when, when he got the name Shadrach, it changed something about him. It goes back to the identity piece. You're no longer... Uh, Hananiah, which means beloved by the Lord. Now you're Shadrach, illuminated by the sun god. Or there was Mishael, meaning who is as God. So he's an imitator of God Almighty. To Meshach, which means who is like Venus. So what a, what a subtle but profound shift. Instead of who is like the Almighty God, and, and now who is like Venus. And then the last, Azariah, which means the Lord is my help, was changed to Abednego, meaning the servant of the god Nego. And that's, so with those names, every time that name is now used, and his old name forgotten, maybe. You can forget your old identity, right? We can forget that this is who God says you are. Who does God say you are? Do you think about that daily? Do you get up in the morning and say, this is the identity God has given me? This is who he says I am. I am his beloved son. I'm his beloved daughter. He approves of me. He has redeemed me with the blood of Jesus Christ. He has worked faith within me. I mean, are these the things we remember every day or do we remember those things that were spoken to us that diminish us? and demean us and reduce us because every one of those names I'm guessing the Babylonians if they heard Shadrach they'd be like oh man what a cool name illuminated by the son of God I mean the God son God right illuminated by the sun God and and yet Shadrach's going to be what what a miserable name I mean I used to my name used to mean imitator of the almighty God now it means this and if you believe that day in and day out, you heard that day in and day out, that message, it would not only dishonor God, but diminish Him. And so I just wonder, right? I mean, what do we hear? What do we repeat in our own heads and get our hearts to believe? 
Is it the message that God has for you about who you are? Not always. Not always. Thanks, Dylan, for that honest transparency. Not always. Sometimes we believe the other voices, the other messages. And, uh, and so, again, those names are important. But Nebuchadnezzar is no dummy. He's saying we're going to change all their names in an effort to change their identity, who they even see themselves as, and how other people will see them. That's one of the things he does. What's the other thing he does? He changes their relationships. Now they're no longer with the people that they have been living with. They're no longer with the people they've identified with. They're no longer with, I mean, these are adolescents, right? So they're no longer with their parents, their families. The Hebrew families, you know, culturally were pretty tight-knit. Extended families all living together. And now, now we've sent them off to a boarding school. Nobody but kids your own age. Changed all their relationships. Nobody to pass on heritage. Nobody to pass on legacy. Nobody to pass on faith. And so he's changed their names for their identity, and he's changed their relationships. And then last, he changes their food. What would you speculate? What would be the reason that Nebuchadnezzar would change their food? Food from the king's table. Well, partly because the Hebrew diets were restrictive as to what they could and could not eat. Sure. Coming from the king's table makes you kind of feel indentured to love. Right? So we could put that kind of on a, a pendulum or a continuum. On the one side of it, I owe him. Now I'm indentured to him. Look at all he's done for me. I'm eating better than I ever ate back at home. And, I mean, wow, he, he's treating us like something special. So now I'm in, kind of indentured or even enslaved to him. I owe him. That would be the other side of that spectrum. If one is kind of I owe him, where would we go the other way? Yes. So instead of kind of the O indentured, now it's kind of a loyalty allegiance to. And it's subtle, but it's like, this is way better. Yeah, I'm going to be grateful to the king, Nebuchadnezzar. They're subtly trying to remove their own identities mm -hmm. and incorporate them. Exactly. Well, like, <clears throat> like Dylan was saying, they were set apart already because of their Hebrew diet. And now they're set apart because of the king's diet. So it's still being set apart, it's just the other. Yeah, whether the king realized this or not, it was a very strategic move, just like you pointed out. They were set apart, holy, right? That's what holy means, set apart. And everything about them was set apart, even their diet plan. And now the king in Babylon is saying, I'm gonna set you apart as well with your names. I'm gonna set you apart with these relationships and now you're in this training for three years and have all the best tutors and all the best you know people overseeing your training process and I'm going to give you the best food I'm setting you apart and and so what a what a transition the king is making and instead of their their affinity and their loyalty being to God now the king Nebuchadnezzar is seeking to, to hold that position in their lives. Pretty subtle though, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Fattening the calves. Yeah, fattening the calves for 
slaughter. Well, and what you eat is part of you. So, you know, you can change your clothing, you can change your hair, you can change those external things, but it's part of you. So it, on a daily basis, it becomes, you become that part of the culture. Absolutely. That's what Paul refers to in Romans chapter 12 when he says, in light of God's great mercy, offer our lives as living sacrifices. And then he gives a warning, right? It's, and don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so what, what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here is changing the way they think about themselves, about one another, about their God, about him about life. He's changing the way they think. And he's conforming them. He's indoctrinating them into something else. And so it's, it's just with food. It's just as simple as with food. What's it going to hurt to just eat a little bit of the king's food? Uh, I'll try and remember who I am. My old name. I'll try and remember the relationships that been torn away from. But it's just food. Yeah. That makes me think of eating the apple. It's just food. You're exactly right, Danny. And what does she say? It looked pleasing to the eye, and it was good for nourishment, and it would make me wise. Wow! I can't go wrong. And so she ate, and she gave some to her husband who ate, who was with her. It actually makes me think of a version of Stockholm Syndrome. What do you mean? Don't. Stockholm Syndrome, when you're in captivity mm -hmm. with someone and you get to a point where you start relating with your captors and become on more friendly terms with them based on their treatment of you mm -hmm. in that. And I can see some And then you become one of them. One of them, yes. Yeah. You side with them versus where you came from. Right. So is this, uh, is this relevant to us today? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. How so? Because we don't have, we have not been taken as exiles or captives into a foreign land. We don't have a king that, you know, changing our names. How is this conformity issue a thing for us? Because what the rest of the world is doing is not what Christ calls us to do all the time. Is it that big of a deal? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I would think so, yes. Question. It wasn't a dumb question, Mary. <laughs> Was that a Captain Obvious thing? Yeah. No, but it is a question that people ask. Of. Yeah. Well, right. Of Christians. Is it really that big of a deal? Right. It's just food. I think it's, it's just I think it's questions we ask of one another. I think it's questions we ask of ourselves. Is it really that big of a deal? Um, but you also fall into it because, like, even in today's world where people, you may not agree with somebody's lifestyle that they take, and you may say, it says it's wrong in the Bible, and they're like, "Well, you're just not loving because of that." And it says, "I'm not love." It's not saying that I don't love you. It's just I don't agree with what you're doing, and I don't want to partake in that and stuff. And they don't understand because then it looks like you are judgmental. You hate hate them. You're not. You don't have any room for them in your life, mm -hmm. even though you're not going to partake in their lifestyles. Why was the chief? You just brought up a really important point, Jessica. Why was the chief officer so worried? It was his own head on the line if something went wrong. It was his head on the line, right? And so he really just wanted Daniel and the other guys to conform, conform to, right? Just go along with it. 
And that's what people want. They want us to say it's okay. Make their life easier. Approve of it. Now, the ironic thing is, the words we hear are, you're hateful, you're cruel, you're judgmental, you don't, you know, whatever. When in fact, approval is hateful. Right? Right. Approving of something, saying, you know, I know that that's going to kill you, but go ahead and do it anyway. Approval of it is a hateful thing to do. The most loving thing to do is to point out a need for a Savior and who the Savior is. Does that make sense? Yeah, because you can love someone and not like a thing they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can disagree with them. Which goes, which takes us right back to the, the power here in verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself, and so he asked the chief official for permission. And I think what you've brought up for us, Jessica, is... Let's not, let's not fall off the log one way and say, I'm going to approve of choices being made by others. I'm not going to go the other side of the log either and just rail on people and take an attitude of, you know, I'm right and you're wrong and I'm holier than thou and that piety kind of a thing. But in truth, say, may I have permission to share something with you. Ask permission. There's, it's great honor to ask permission. To not just step into somebody's life and say, let me tell you what's wrong. But to ask permission to share something. May I share something with you? May I make an observation? May I? And if they say yes, you know, even the chief officer here was like, my head's on the line. This is this is risky to give you permission. And so we are recognizing what a great honor it is when somebody says, yeah, go ahead, tell me. And then we tell them, still in compassion and with grace and mercy and love and charity, but we share. If they say, no, I don't want to hear it, okay. Because I'm convinced that when Daniel asked permission, if the chief officer had said, no, you still have to eat the king's food, he would have eaten the king's food. But it was the Holy Spirit who was at work in the chief officer's life making him ready. Just like it will be the Holy Spirit working in that other person's life making them ready. So we ask permission. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Is that meaningful to you? I just find that so important. To ask the permission. I think, you know, uh, I think this illustration is, is uh, relevant. Shelby, living in Jackson, away from home, and, and working in different environments. And so she asked me this conversation, you know, a conversation a few, three weeks ago. She says, Dad, I really want to be a, a light for Christ in my community. You know, it's very likely that she is the only believer in Jesus Christ in that community. And, and so she's like, you know, how can I faithfully proclaim the gospel to these people? And, you know, in the end, we talked about a few different things. And, but in the end, what I told her is, when the moment seems right, you ask permission. You, you know, it's not that she has all this burden or guilt that says, I should have said something or I missed that opportunity, whatever. It was when, when the Holy Spirit presents that opportunity, you say, may I have permission to share something with you? 
And then they can, you know, the Holy Spirit is the one who's at work then, not you. The Holy Spirit's at work in you. The Holy Spirit's at work in them. It's all about faith. And that's what Daniel did. He made a request of the chief officer by faith in God. Not the chief. Not in Nebuchadnezzar. Not in his own wit. But in his faith in God, he asks for permission. So I, I hope that that is meaningful for us as we, again, live in a world that wants us to conform, would love for us to conform, and gets upset when we don't, and gets upset when we point out what's broken. And so honor, love. Right, because the world wants our approval and our permission to live in sin. Mm -hmm. They want us to approve of that. And if you don't, like Jess was saying, then you're intolerant and yeah. unloving. And Even as we're doing this red-letter challenge, we can see obvious points where Jesus blatantly points out where the sin and the brokenness is. And so, you know, I appreciate what, what Zach brings up for us in the intro video and even in some of the comments within the book, is that if you were to ask people what they think about Jesus, by and large, most people would say, loving, gracious, kind, merciful. But he didn't always approve. He didn't always affirm. He didn't always condone what was being done. In fact, there were many times he very blatantly, and even in some respects kind of with some force, says what you're doing is wrong. Right? I mean, even as we were reading, so there's several places in the Gospels where it specifically says Jesus was angry. Yeah. Well, when he went to the temple and flipped tables. And yeah. You know, when he got angry with the disciples yeah. for keeping the children away. Mm -hmm. And what was the one we just read? It was, it was day 11 or 12? 12. 12. Remind me of the example. Sabbath. The Sabbath. Sabbath. Yeah. yeah. And so Jesus was angry at that point as well. Because they the Sabbath. Yeah. So, you know, there's times he did not approve. Didn't condone what was, what was happening. Um, so again, as his followers, I think there's, we're not, he doesn't call us to approve of or affirm what other people are doing that's causing the, uh, that was the reason he died on the cross for them. Yeah. So back to Daniel and our, and our people here. Um, one of the things I think that Nebuchadnezzar realized after his interactions with the Jewish people is that just like God has de described them as stubborn and stiff-necked, I think Nebuchadnezzar realizes that they're stubborn and stiff-necked. And so what's the best way to soften somebody up? Food. A little food. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's why we have coffee and bad treats out in the gym. No, just kidding. <laughs> but uh, what's the other thing that Nebuchadnezzar is doing? So he's already changed their names, right? From loving and serving and, and imitating God Almighty to idolatry. He's already changed their relationships. He's already changed their... What's he... With the food again, he's, a, he's a wanting to accomplish one more thing, I think. And, and that, are you talking about the allegiance or? You're on the right track, I think, Delisa, but I just want to know exactly where you're going. Pull it out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was just trying to change the focus of what they're living. It's not on God anymore. It's right. So which commandment is he wanting them to break? So the God first. First. First commandment. 
He is wanting them to look to him. Nebuchadnezzar is wanting them to look to him for to provide for them instead of God. And that's what I, I was wondering if that's the direction you were headed with the heart to look to him. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to be to be able to say to these young men, look to me for everything. When in fact the first commandment God is saying, look to him for everything. Call upon him in every time of need and trial. Call upon him for provision. Call upon him to praise and with adoration. Him, first commandment. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what our society kind of does is try to draw you away from looking to God like things like 9-11 they're like well where was your God and they constantly are pointing out to where I think I'm, I know I'm guilty of it of being like yeah where was he <laughs> kind of thing. and so you start questioning that kind of belief too. for sure the idea again is are you really going to why would you Why I, if I heard you know why would you look to him he failed you where was he you know um we took that missions trip years ago. We took the youth on a missions trip to Moore, Oklahoma to help with some of the recovery efforts after the huge tornado. And they, they actually made a video, of a, kind of a documentary of that whole, um, you know, the scenario with the tornado, and that was the name of it. Where was God? That was the title of the documentary, Where Was God? When all this is breaking loose. And the, and the conformity idea is we'll look to either ourselves or to others, we'll look anywhere but to God. Which, Danny, you already brought up for us. That was what Eve did in the garden. Looked somewhere else. Looked to a serpent. Looked to her own logic and reasoning. Looked to look somewhere other uh, than God himself. So, Daniel says, can I have permission? Can I have permission? to trust in God in this activity. That's kind of what he's saying. I'm going to live by faith in God. So much so that I'm going to ask you for permission to live by faith in God. Powerful moment. I'd like to turn our attention for just a few moments. Danny, you led us there already. And so let's go to 1 John chapter 2. Specifically, verse 16. Um, but as always, I'm going to start with verse 15. I shouldn't say always. I start looking at it and I, like, I can't leave that verse out. So, 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, right, that's our situation with Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to get these boys to love him to love the world that they are now in, his world, and, and therefore to um, not love God. Verse 16, For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has done, has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. And... And so, it's like John was with Daniel when he wrote those words. If the temptation would be the pride of life. So it happens, right, in the garden, 
that's what I meant, Danny, you led us there already with Eve, or with Daniel in Babylon. What's the pride of life? How would we? Me. Doing it's easier, yeah. it's better, whatever so me. I'm, I'm, I'm that, yeah, and I, whatever's more comfortable or easier or what I enjoy, those kinds of things. Do it my own way. Do it my own way. I want more. Yeah. Or I deserve something. I deserve more. That's, those are pride of life. That's Eve, right? Here, God's holding something out on us. He's given us everything in the garden, but this one thing. Why can't we have that one thing, too? And, and so it's, I think what you said there, Delisa, was it's all about me. Pride of life. Look at me. How could Daniel have, how could that have been a trap for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I'm going to have to go with those names because I can never remember their Hebrew names. Okay. <laughs> well, it might be easier for them if they, if they just, just go with it. Yeah. Put sure. If they just start putting themselves first, life will be easier for them. And we're here. We're here. We had no control over that. So why not just go with the flow? Almost like a, either an excuse or um, what's what kind of condoning it, saying right. When and what we do as the Romans do. Yeah, right. we're here, so we might as well do it all, right? This. He has to be here. Yeah. So just like Adam blamed God for Eve, <laughs> <laughs> the woman you, got, you gave you me. gave me. That's the reason we're in a pickle. Yeah. So well, God. I'm in Egypt, I mean, I'm in Babylon because God either let it happen, allowed it to happen, made it happen, whatever spin we want to put on that, so I guess I might as well just, or entitled, right? We were the brightest and the best. It was all the less thens that got left behind, but we were chosen to come here to Babylon, and so we, we must be entitled. We must deserve this lifestyle, this way of living. And, uh, and as was pointed out earlier, I think it was, so let's, let's take full advantage of it. So that would be pride of life examples. What about lust of the flesh? The fancy food of the king's table. Satisfying the physical pleasure. That's again what Eve said. Mm -hmm. Looks like it's good for eating. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, why not? Food from the king's table, wine and meat and all that goes with it. I one of you already mentioned, probably eating a whole lot better than they were back at home. Especially and if they've been under siege for several years. Right. Yeah, things have been tough mm -hmm. in Israel and Jerusalem for years. And so why not just satisfy the physical pleasure? And it's even being encouraged. The conformity would be, go ahead, satisfy that. Because we want you to, and everybody else is. Good point, Danny. Often, hopelessness is tried to be accommodated for or healed by a lust of the flesh. Let's just satisfy our needs. It doesn't matter anyway. I mean, it also becomes you know, nihilistic in that approach. But So yeah, just right now. Now is all that's important. And again, we try and... Because we don't have a future anyway. Yeah. So, so on the one hand, it's trying to band-aid or appease a, a need. On the other hand, it's let's just live it to the hilt. It's available to us. Be silly not to. Or what about lust of the eyes? 
Wait, what's that? It looks good. It looks good. And, boy, I want what they have. Mm -hmm. I want what they have. You know what? If they're being fed that well, they're probably being dressed really well, too. Yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, this is quite the... It does. Well, in, in that world time frame, Babylon was the largest. Oh, they were pretty wealthy. The yeah. empires that were existing, they were the one to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they were the Beverly Hills of that area. Yeah. Because they had the most. They had the most money. They had the most stuff. The fanciest things. And I think, so yeah, well-dressed, groomed. It even says that. I mean, they were polished up. Well, and that's why they took the handsome, young, strong. They were to be. They were the model. Right. That's right. why they took, you know, into captivity, those from the <coughs> societies that they conquered. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, Nebuchadnezzar was a, a man ahead of his time. I think. But uh, what we have here is even when they ask the chief officer, "Can we have this kind of food <coughs> for ten days?" I don't know. About day five, I'm looking over at what everybody else is eating. I'm like, oh, yeah. you've brought me the food that my food eats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I might start thinking, I want what they have. Mm -hmm. You know? I, it seemed like a good idea on day one. And uh, Teresa, can I share your fasting story a little bit? Mm -hmm. So as part of being, she chose Thursday was fasting. <laughs> and I was on the road uh, that day. And so she says, well, how are you going to fast? I mean, I was lecturing to a bunch of other clinicians and things. And I was like, well, I'm not going to fast from food. And I'm not going to fast from... And I said, well, I guess I'm just going to have to... And I thought, maybe I'll fast from baseball. No, that'll be too hard. So <laughs> that was the point. <laughs> Thank you, Jess. So, <laughs> so I fasted from anxiety and worry that day. I, I, didn't, I wasn't anxious or worried at all that day. <laughs> Until the Cubs lost. Until, yeah. That, no, then I was just angry. But anyway. <laughs> no, Patrice's story, much better than mine. Um, so she, you had homeschool stuff that day. I mean, you had uh, the skating rink, homeschool skating, plus then it's your kind of fair for other organizations and people in the community to let homeschoolers know what's available to them. And so you're setting up an organization and all that. And then, what, I forget what was next, Thursday, you had other things. Um, Joshua had a doctor's appointment, and we had a homeschool movie, and... Yeah, just busy all day, and uh, actively busy. And about halfway through the day, I get a text. I'm not sure this was a good idea <laughs> to fast today. It seemed like a good idea at seven o'clock this morning, or actually, you started the night before, right? Yeah. So, you know, you get ha into it, and you're like, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. As I was sitting next to my child eating Arby's for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there we have Daniel sitting next to the other guys eating their king's table food, and he's got some vegetables and water. So the, the lust of the eyes, coveting what somebody else might have. Eve coveted what God had. Lucifer coveted what God had. I mean, this has been around for a while. Lucifer says, I want the throne. Eve says, I want the wisdom that has been promised by eating this food. I want something more than what I have. Daniel could have been in that spot to say, I want what would they have with the food? They, they were in the king's courts, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, surrounded. So it was the best of the best. It wasn't just like living about what it was. It was the best of everything they had. 
And it wouldn't have been that they were just eating in their rooms by themselves with room service, eating, you know, their vegetables and water by themselves. I mean, they're eating their vegetables and water sitting right next to the guy with the lamb shank. And so it's just like we and live in this world right next to people who have stuff that looks awfully good sometimes. Well, and it's really hard because our society now tells everybody they should all have the same thing. Like, there's no, it's, if you play sports, everybody gets the same recognition, basically. Um, y'all get a trophy, y'all get this and stuff. And, um, but we live in a world where we tell our kids that everybody, you, you should have the same thing that the kid next to you have. Has. And, and it's not fair it's if you don't. Yeah. And it's not fair if you don't. It's not fair if you don't understand what you're being taught and have to spend extra time to learn it and things. And they miss all the things that come with learning that life is not fair and that we all have different paths to walk and things that are easier for some people are going to be harder for other people, but it will change at other points. And we, we all are not the same. And it's no, okay I not to be the same. Not only okay, but a, by design, yeah. not to be the same. And that's a hard one to swallow sometimes. You know, we look around, and whether it be, whether like you're talking about kids and sports or academics or as adults, money and things, or, you know, we can go on down the list. I mean, it wouldn't be that hard if I just gave you 30 seconds to consider within this last week, when was that moment that you wished you had something that somebody else had? Or, again, I think what you're pointing out is just wish it came as easy for me as it does for that person, whatever the case may be. Or I wish that some of my relationships were as good as what it seems like their relationships look like. We can, I wish I didn't suffer with this pain because I don't think that person suffers with that pain. I mean, the list could populate pretty quickly as to this kind of the idea of lust of the eyes, the covenant what somebody else has that we want. And I'm convinced that this idea of fairness, as you brought up, fairness is one of the tools of Satan to eat away at us on that. Because as Teresa pointed out, sometimes sameness is defined, I mean fairness is defined as sameness. Everybody has the, the same. Well actually that's not fair. It would not be fair if we all had the same thing. And, and in fact, God doesn't. This life isn't fair. It's a broken world. And you're broken, and I'm broken, and, and so there won't be fairness. But what God speaks about, he never says he's fair. He says he's just. He says he's faithful. Is that what? In love. And so those, you know, fairness is a way, I think, of Satan working this in to say, Go ahead and want what somebody else has. You should have it. You deserve it. It would be more comfortable for you. You'd have your needs satisfied. You'd have more pleasure. You you know? Taking the fairness of something and saying, well, that's not fair to me. You're taking the problem and turning it internal instead of turning it up to God and Which, saying, this is what's going on. What do you want me to do in this? Yeah. Versus, this isn't fair that this is happening to me. I don't deserve this. Right, Dylan. And so what you just pointed out for us is another a breaking of the first commandment because now I'm looking right. to me right. instead of, as you pointed out, looking to God. And, uh, and so, yeah, boy, it gets, like it gets all wrapped up and intertwined pretty quickly. And that's, again, 
where Daniel was. But what does Daniel do? I mean, what is Satan with, again, the food, the names, right? We can look at those. It's a name, especially in our culture. It's a name. That's because we don't understand what the meaning names had back then. Sure, sure. That's why God changed names to people, too, when he did something great to them. He did. Abram to Abraham, Jacob to Israel. Simon to Peter. Saul to Paul. Yeah, <laughs> names meant something, right? But we might say, what's the name? Um, what's a little food, a little beverage, right? Satan is going to go after the little things. But didn't they know? And I mean, I read in here that the um, the food from the royal the royal foods were um, um, offerings to their is idols. Is that in a Bible study note? Yeah. 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 That's and, also. And so wouldn't they realize that and use that to strengthen themselves to know that I don't want that because that has been offered to an idol mm -hmm. and the wine was and we would believe that when Daniel says defiled okay he's not only the food laws that they had okay. but also the sacrificing of those okay. those items to idols okay. you're right which is why I brought up that thank you Mary so much for pointing that out to us because that's what I'm when I'm talking about Satan going after the little things mm -hmm. You know, it's, and Dylan, you capitalized on that as well. I'm looking to something other than God. Because that's what they were saying. We've sacrificed this food to the idols because we believe the idols are who's provided this food for us. And that, that's a breaking okay. again of the first commandment. Thank you, Mary, for, for pointing that out. So what does Daniel do? He doesn't say, don't call me that name. He doesn't say... I'm not going to dress in the royal clothing or live in the palace. He doesn't say that I'm going to escape tonight and go back home. What does he ask for? He asks for permission. To do what God's asking to yeah, do. Yeah, to be faithful in the little things. Yeah. Satan's going after the little things, so to speak. And justifiable things. I think that's our discussion was. I mean, Daniel could have justified that in any number of ways. I need to eat, and I'm here, and... Well, and if you're killed because you outwardly protest what's going on on a big level, you are not able to show the faith and love you have for a longer period of time either. Even though some people need that, that they need to have that... You know, God calls them to do that, mm -hmm. but God also calls us just to behave, to do as He's asked us to do in our daily lives, even when you have to conform on some things. Like, I know um, somebody who works in the school system who can't openly talk about God all the time, but still, in the things that they did, still show God, mm -hmm. and things that they had to conform on some levels of things, but were able to show God in other ways. And and things, and I think that this is the way it showed, Daniel shows that we can walk a faithful path with God, even if we're put in circumstances that, that don't allow us to walk every moment in the way we would always choose to walk. Right, and uh, and to springboard off what you said there, Jess, I think as you were talking, what came to my mind was, and, and being faithful in the little things is the best way to walk faithfully with God. He being faithful, little is faithful much. Yeah. Or will be faithful. Yeah. So being faithful in those little things leads to greater faithfulness. They were, Jim, the, the, the reason they were um, 
in captivity is because God told them they were to. They weren't actually supposed to fight back. He said, I'm going to bring Nebuchadnezzar down. They were not supposed to go to war with them. Right. In fact, the, the scriptures tell us that this was God's punishment for their unfaithfulness. They were supposed right? to go. They were supposed to yeah. suffer the consequences. Mm -hmm. Daniel was actually doing exactly what God told him. Right. You're absolutely correct. Yeah. So the people that went out and fought about wars were actually in rebellion against God. That was the problem why they were there in the first place. Yeah. And so I just want to, I want to make that link again for us because it's such an important one. God said, and he warned them over and over again with the prophets, your unfaithfulness is going to lead to these consequences. There is a connection between your unfaithfulness to him and the consequences are going to happen. And so now, as part of that, right, I'm going to bring Babylon in. I'm going to bring Nebuchadnezzar in. They're going to take you into exile as part of the consequences, but also part of the, the protecting the line that Jesus would come through. But as you pointed out, now it's in that context where Daniel is being faithful in the little things. Holy cow! I didn't hear the bell. I didn't hear the bell. No, it didn't ring. Good thing I'm not preaching. Okay. I just about had a heart attack. Be faithful in the little things. Almighty God, thank you for your love, your grace. Thank you for this time that we can get so wrapped up in your word and your truth and, and your love for us, your relationship with us, um, that we can lose track of time. Uh, so, Father, I ask for your blessing to rest upon each one of us according to your grace and your will. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Hey everyone, just a reminder that we have Oktoberfest coming up on October 5th at 5 p.m. If you are willing to volunteer for this, please contact the church office as soon as possible, but also make sure to save a date and invite your friends. And we have a cornhole tournament coming up to help support Grace Lutheran School Athletics. So if you are interested in having a team, you can register with Ryan Stralo or Robert Rashke. And each team entry is $50, and it will include a smoked pork lunch. And lastly, this coming Sunday, we are having our service Sunday in conjunction with the Red Letter Challenge Service Week. So if you are a part of a service group, make sure that they have all connected in and have a booth set up in the gym by Saturday from 9 to 2. If that time doesn't work for you, you can talk, contact me, Christina Parker, um, this week and we will make sure to make other arrangements. Hope you have a great week.